It is a great pleasure to have those of you here for the first time. Welcome. It's a joy. Hope you use the coupon. Foods are very, very good in the cafe after, after the service. And it's uh, a joy to uh, uh, treat you all today. So. But before all of that, we have to get into some very serious business. And that is our study in Genesis chapter 34. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible around you somewhere in, on, in the chairs in front of you. And uh, you can follow along with us. But uh, we are in Genesis chapter 34, continuing on in the life of Jacob and his family. And uh, I have to say right off the bat that, that this particular study is, is, is quite difficult. It's a very difficult uh, passage to uh, present, to teach, because of the nature of its content. It, 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 there's some very sensitive and uh, traumatic issues that take place. And it reveals deeply the wickedness, not only in, in the heart of man, generally speaking, but how easy it is for those who are supposed to know God to fall back into sin that becomes very costly, not only to a family and to family members, but even to a nation. In getting to this place, though, as you'll notice the text, if you can read it, it says, taking costly detours. Now, sometimes detours, detours are good. But when God has established a plan for our life to follow, and we take a detour away from that plan, it becomes costly and expensive to us. All along, Jacob has been commanded by God to leave Padan Aram, the area where Haran was, where his father-in-law Laban lived, where he met his wives Rachel and, and Leah. Of course, he really just wanted Rachel, and we, we know what happened back then with Leah, and then also the two handmaidens. You got to catch up if you haven't uh, been there with us. But uh, so far, Le- uh, Jacob has been an up and, on this up and down uh, spiritual life. There's days when he's up here on the top of the pinnacle or the peak of of his walk and and talking to God and trusting the Lord. And then there's other days where he's down in the depths trying to do things his own way in his own manner. And that becomes costly. He became very fearful because he heard that his brother Esau was on his way to, to meet him and he had 400 men, and of course, the way that he had left Esau back in Beersheba was, well, he had deceived him out of, his, out of his birthright and his blessing. So Esau was really mad at Jacob and held it against him for many years. That's the reason why Rebekah sent Jacob to, to Haran in the first place, to get away from Esau. And he would cool down, wouldn't he, in just a few days? That's what she said. Never happened. 
But God has commanded him to go back home, and he's somewhat obedient, heading in the direction of home, but he doesn't quite get there. And then comes the meeting with, with, with Esau. And then there was this personal, this, this personal meeting between the deceiver and his brother. And the insight on forgiveness, which was our last study last week, the insight on forgiveness, I have to tell you, was, was a very personal issue. And that was the reason why I focused on that. I, I did have some, some people ask me about uh, the, the issues between Israel and, and Edom, because Edom are the descendants of Esau. And uh, there are the prophecies that we read in the books of Amos and Obadiah and, and, and Isaiah, where it tells us, of course, that God is going to judge very harshly, you know, the nation of Edom because of the way it treated its brother. But that was, that, those are national issues. That, those, those are nation against nation, which was actually the prophecy given back when Jacob and Esau were in the womb of Rebekah and they were fighting. That, that was the prophecy that was given about the way that they were going to be as far as nations were concerned. This was a personal matter between Jacob and Esau. And we saw that Esau forgave Jacob. The unbeliever forgiving the believer. What a lesson and what a way for us to learn a lesson about forgiveness. So I wanted just to clarify that about last week's study. I I understand the implications about the nation against nation issue. But that's for another time. That's when we study those books. This was a very personal matter because we in this day and age need to learn what it means to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. That was the whole point. But now he deceives his own brother Esau. He says, listen, I'll I'll meet you in Mount Seir. You go south and I'll come after you in just a few days. Instead, he goes north to Sukkot and then to Shechem. A detour, folks, that becomes very costly for his family. And that's where we are here today. Now, some people have asked me, why? Why why did he not want to be with Esau? Now, I mentioned last week very simply because, you know, this is surmising, as it were, or uh, speculating at best, but <clears throat> more than likely it was because he didn't really fully trust his brother yet because his brother, uh, he just didn't know if his brother was going to suck him into a situation where we'd kill him anyway. So he was still suspicious of Esau. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was still suspicious of Esau, so, uh, you know, in, in that there was fear. But, uh, but let's be fair with Jacob again, because here again there, there is a, a biblical principle. And the biblical principle is that of not being unequally yoked. And to be fair to Jacob, Esau was, was still uh, an unbeliever. Esau had chosen to disobey Isaac by taking Canaanite wives. Whereas Jacob did not. Jacob had met God. Esau had not. And it didn't seem that whatever testimony that Jacob gave of God to Esau stuck in Esau's life. But uh, we can say that Esau and Jacob may have met later on at some other time out of the, the pages of Scripture simply because in chapter 36 of of Genesis there is an account of all of Esau's descendants and so that's an interesting thing that he would have given that sometime to to Jacob who would pass that on the way down to Moses who actually wrote the first five books of the Bible so uh, that's that's a possibility there 
But here we are now in a place called Shechem. But that's after Jacob had disobeyed God. He really not obeyed God in going where God wanted him to be. So let's deal with these costly detours. Let's start with Genesis 34 verse 1. Now Dinah, it says, Dinah, of course, being the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Already there's a problem here. Dinah is in her mid-teens at this time. Probably a little younger than that. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. This, this is the difficulty of this particular chapter. This was, in fact, a rape. Shechem, the son of Hamor, forced himself upon this young woman. It says that he saw her, he took her, and he violated her. And lay with her, of course, that, that, of course, sexually, and violated her. In the King James Version of the Bible, it says that he defiled her, and that's a better word. He defiled because it deals with the issue of humbling her to the point of making her unclean. A very sad issue. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. Please do not be deceived uh, by the words that he loved and that he was kind to her. Not that the, the scriptures are trying to deceive you. This may very well be the way that he felt toward her after he has violated her. So please understand that the scriptures are being as honest as possible. But think about this. By the way, we're going to learn that Dinah was actually kidnapped. She did not go home after this. So they were keeping her in Hamor's house in Shechem. So that's violation number one. And we think of people that have been violated in our day and time. We see it on the news all the time. That guy in Ohio that had those women for ten years or so. He could get on TV and and, and say, well, yeah, you know, I, I had some affection for her. After he's violated them? So, so be careful what we read sometimes. Even in the scriptures, we have to understand why it's being said. And I'll show you why in a moment. So it says that he spoke kindly to the young woman. He loved the young woman, spoke kindly to the young woman. Yeah, you can do that when they're under, under guard. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. This really reveals now his heart. Get me this young woman as a wife. He's pointing to her. He's saying this in front of his own father. Make it so, so that I don't have to answer for what I've done. I'm I'm revealing a little too much to you yet. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now Jacob finds out the father of this young girl. But then it says, now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Folks, this is a major problem. He held his peace until they came. Who knows when they would come? I mean, being out in the field could be days, could be weeks. You fathers who have daughters, you, would, would you have held your peace? Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't think you would have, would you? 
if you had heard of a violation of your own daughter. This is very, very disturbing. It's very disconcerting. Because we look at Jacob as, as being a, sometimes a reflection of ourselves. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Here's, here's a, a dutiful father wanting to help his son who has just violated someone. But he's going to go over to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Disgraceful literally means foolish. He had done a very foolish and disgraceful thing in Israel. By the way, there is no Israel really as a nation yet. It is really speaking of the fact that they, they foolishly disgraced the father of this young woman and this young woman herself as well. By lying with Jacob's daughter, that's the violation, a thing which ought not to be done. And not just in the culture of Jacob, but in the culture of the Philistines as well. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Signs. Back in, back in the early 70s, there was a group called the Five Men Electrical Band. Hippie type thing, you know. And they did a song called Signs. How many of you remember that? Show your age. Okay. Uh, you all remember that? Signs, signs, everywhere signs. Blocking out the scenery. Breaking my mind. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? Right? All right. We'll all sing it in a, in a moment together. No, I'll just kidding. We won't sing it. Yeah, a lot of signs out there. That's the way it sometimes looks for us when we're trying to get one from one place to another. And here's the thing. The Lord had already established not only a path and a purpose for Jacob, but he had provided his presence, provision, protection, and his peace for his travels as long as Jacob followed the very simple and clear signs that the Lord had provided along the way to Bethel. He had already provided a sign. It was a good sign. and It was a clear sign. Not like this. Not like that. Y'all see, you know, y'all see detours on the road? This is, they're just stored here. But it looks kind of interesting, doesn't it? Detour this way, detour that way, detour this way, right? Because this is sometimes the way that we have to face life. Even when God has given us a clear sign from His Word, how we are to live, how we are to do things, how we are to, to do the, 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 the issues of life, you know, here's two signs pointing to each other, you know. Go this way, go that way, and you're just going to meet and run into each other. My favorite sign is this one. Speed bump, 15 miles. Look at the speed bump. I don't think I want to go that road at any given time. But God gave a sign. A very clear sign. It was his word to Jacob. And it says, I am the God of Bethel. Genesis 31 verse 13. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. This was where Jacob met God. When he saw Jacob's ladder, they call it. When he saw that stairway with the angels ascending and descending. And God stood there and spoke to Jacob. 
and said to him, Jacob, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the blessing of Abraham, your grandfather. I'm going to give you that same blessing. And you are going to have descendants that cannot be counted. There was another blessing through Jacob, the seed of the Messiah would come. But the, but the sign is this. He says, now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. Isn't that a very clear sign? Do this, Jacob. Arise and go, get out of this land and return to the land of your family, but start by coming to Bethel first. That's a sign. So that's a straightforward command. And I, can, and I have to tell you this, our God is not a God of confusion. Our God is not the God of confusion. But the world, the flesh and the devil, as the Bible teaches us, the world, the flesh and the devil are quite the confusing elements in our lives and the enemy does all that he can to, compli- uh, to complicate matters through them. You know, when you think about it and you read the Word of God, there are not a lot of complications that God puts in our way. He just makes it very clear. Our flesh adds the complications. The world will add complications. You know, the enticements of the world will add complications. And the devil himself does all that he can to deceive us into these complications of our lives. Is it any wonder then that we are told by John, in 1 John 2 verse 15, do not love the world or the things... In the world, do not love them. Now remember that love means putting something to the very top of your list of what you care for, what you do. To honor, protect, or care for these things. You know, it's the top of of the rung, you know. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world that way, the love of the Father is not in him. So, do we have the love of the Father? Do we have the love of God that comes through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Because if we have that kind of love, then we're not going to be complicated by all the love of the world. And there's a lot of it to go around. And this is what he says in the next verse. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Where were we given that directive? All the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In the temptation in the garden. The fruit that was pleasant to the eyes, the taste of it, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you eat of this fruit, why why did God tell you, you know, that you're not supposed to eat of it? Did He really say that? Listen, if you eat of it, you'll be like God. And you'll be able to know between good and evil. But see, God had wanted to protect man, and, and, and man disobeyed Him. So now John, using that same thought process that we need to understand about sin and, and, and the way that the world tries to overthrow us in the world of flesh and the devil. He says, all of, that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away. So if we get on, if we get on the, the world bandwagon, I mean, that's headed down to destruction. So it's passing away, and the lust of it is passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. He who does the will of God abides forever. And the will of God, by the way, in the, book of, in, the, in the Gospel of John says, the will of God is to know and to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the will of the, that's the, will of the Father. 
Very simple directive that we were given. But here's the thing. He who does the will of God abides forever. Now, what did Jacob not do? He did not abide and do the will of God. God said, go to Bethel. Where does he go? He goes to Sukkot first, and then he goes to Shechem. Now, those two cities are not far from each other. It's just on the other side of the Jordan. But he doesn't do what God wants him to do. So let's go back for just a moment into chapter 33 to see the first costly detour that Jacob takes. The first costly detour is he settles in Sukkot, and then he stops short in Shechem. He settles in Sukkoth, and he stops short in Shechem. Stops short of where he's supposed to go. And, and we saw that back in, in Genesis 33, verses 17 through 20. It says that Jacob journeyed to Sukkot. The word Sukkot in the Hebrew is, is, it just means booths or temporary shelter or a temporary uh, dwelling place. It says that Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, built himself a house. By the way, the, 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 the understanding here, the implication is that he built a house that was a little bit more permanent than a booth. <laughs> built it for himself, which was, by the way, again, not in the will of God for him. We'll see that in a moment. And then it says that he made booths for his livestock. So he does make booths for his livestock, but not for himself. He makes a house because he wants to settle down. And therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. But then, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. So, I mean, he, this guy just doesn't know what he wants. He builds a house in Sukkot, and then just a couple of years later, he just goes down the road to Shechem, and, and what he does is he goes into the land of Canaan. Oh, I'm obeying God. I'm going to Canaan, which is the, the land of promise, but not where God wants him to be in the land of promise. He goes to the land of Canaan when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. That scares me there, that he pitched his tent before the city, because that reminds me so much of someone named Lot, the the nephew of Abraham, who when given the choice of going west or east, chose to go east in the fertile land, but even though the land was fertile, what else was there? Sodom. And I can tell you this, Lot was never comfortable in Sodom. As a matter of fact, God had to take him out of Sodom. Because he was here, you're just here too long. I've got to get you out of here. And Jacob pitches his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. He's already had a little dealing with this family, hasn't he? He buys a piece of land that he didn't even need to buy. And then he erected an altar there and he called it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And, and you know, it's interesting that God does not call him Israel yet in this whole chapter, yet he erects a, 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 a place of worship, which, by the way, was more of a religious uh, uh, activity or a, a religious act on his part rather than a relational act. It wasn't building a, a, an altar really because he had a, this great relationship with the Lord. It was religious. God wants us to have a relationship with him. Not a religious relationship, but a personal relationship. 
So it doesn't matter. You know, we, we can meet in here. Praise the Lord. I'm thankful for what God has given us. And we can meet outside. Because what? We can meet anywhere and where two or more are gathered in His name. God's there. That's what the Bible tells us. But sometimes we use religion as a way to cover up things too. So be careful about that. So simply in Sukkot, Jacob was builder. In Shechem, Jacob was a buyer. In both cases, he showed signs of his backsliding from God's command to return to Bethel, the place God had met with him. And that would prove to be a costly detour for this, a detour for this patriarch because it shows that Jacob was not yet fully determined in his own heart to seek and to serve the Lord. In a word, he was abandoning at this time his pilgrim way of life. Because I want you to consider what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, and I'll just read it to you. It says, By faith, Abraham, uh, the he there is Abraham, by faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents, notice, temporary, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So what, is, what it's telling us is that Abraham had to pass on to Isaac and to Jacob the very fact that, listen, we are here temporarily on this earth. We're not to bring, put roots into the world because our home is not here. Our home is in heaven. Right? Yeah. That's what the Bible teaches us. Abraham was looking for the city whose builder and foundation is God. That's how we are to live our lives of faith. Abraham was a man of faith. We are to live our lives in faith, in trust. That God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on a cross for our sins. That whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And because Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day, then we have the promise of Everlasting life, but not here, wherever he is. Remember that Jesus said, I'm going to gather you unto myself, and where I am, there you will also be. Well, that we, just want, we, would, we just want to be with Jesus. That's the most important place for us to be after this life is done. But getting back to Jacob, there's no indication that the Lord had given Jacob either a command or even an okay to buy property that was already his by His promise. We talked a little bit about that last week. But the most costly part of this detour involves a person that should have been the most precious to Jacob, and that's his daughter, Dinah. And notice what this detour is all about. Dinah, the daughter... uh, Going back to verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Now, what's a teenager going out by herself? Because what we find out is there's no chaperone. There's no way of of keeping watch on her, at least given to us in this particular passage. She went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite prince of the country, saw her, he took her and he lay with her and he violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a, as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, and now his sons were with his livestock in the fields. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they had heard it, and, and the men were grieved and very angry. And, and that because he had done a, a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought 
not to be done. Now, the second detour, the costly detour, is that Jacob went away from his parental responsibility. He went away. Did not go directly where he should have gone from beginning to end. He went away from his responsibility and into the world. And by the way, the into the world part is also the sons that should have known better in the way that they tried to deal with this situation that had happened to their sister. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, there is one significant point that needs to be made here. It's a, the, the, one of the most important points that needs to be made today about this passage, and that is that God is not mentioned once in the events that took place in chapter 34. God is not mentioned once in this chapter. Now, this is a reminder of, of, of things that happened even in the life of Abraham many, many years before, when there was a certain period of time where Abraham was not listening to God, so there was this silence between God and Abraham. Now remember, that that relationship was very true, and it was a very good relationship, where even God called Abraham his friend. Abraham was the friend of God. But there was a point, a, a, a period, I should say, of time, where Abraham and God did not communicate, and those are silent in the Scriptures. So whenever we find a a chapter where there is no mention of God, that's significant. Now, I'm not talking about the book of Esther because, you know, the book of Esther, all all the ten chapters of that particular book, there's no mention of God there, but there's a reason. Yet God is seen on every page of that book because of the heart of Esther uh, in dealing with with the nation of Israel and and the destruction that that could have come about by by the actions of, of this one Hebrew woman. Well, that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing here with silence because they are not listening to God. They are not calling out to God. Jacob did not call out to God to say, Lord, what do I do? My daughter has been violated. Lord, give me wisdom. I need to do the right thing. He doesn't even open his mouth. He does nothing. The brothers, on the other hand, they don't seek after God. They just say, we're just going to Take law into, the law into our own hands. So we see how costly this detour was. So it's a sad commentary on the faltering and the failing attitude that Jacob showed in trying to become like the world. And as we'll see in this chapter, Jacob, for all intents and purposes, seems to have lost all control uh, of behavior of his children. He lost all control over the behavior of his children. Dinah is considered to be in her early teens, as I said earlier, uh, in this chapter. And being the only daughter of Jacob, while surrounded by 11 brothers, might have prompted her to go to Shechem seeking companionship from other teenage girls or young women. But the real problem was that it appears that she was not properly chaperoned, either by the parents or by her older brothers. And the world and the flesh and the devil played an important and prominent role in bringing about the harm that Dinah would suffer. Jacob's poor choice of settling short of home left his family open to ungodly influence. Folks, that was a costly detour. Where Jacob ended up, instead of where God wanted him, was costly to his daughter. At the same time, the other detail was he didn't go in the direction of his responsibility, and neither did Leah for that matter. 
They let her go into the world by herself. I'll tell you this, we live in a world today where we have to be a lot more careful with our sons and our daughters, where they go and what they do. Because this is a very wicked world we live in. I, you know, it doesn't matter. that Sometimes you watch the local news and if, if they're talking about somebody that, that was arrested for a, a heinous crime and the neighbor is interviewed, well, he seems to be a nice person. Yeah, nice person that has murderous intentions in his heart. On the outside, everybody looks nice. Y'all look pretty nice too. I hope I look nice. The only problem is, who knows our hearts better than God? And the deepest parts of our hearts, He knows us. And we know that sometimes the outside really covers up what's on the inside. Thank the Lord that He changes our hearts when we come to Jesus. He changes our hearts when we come to Jesus. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll make sure you heard that. Because I don't want you to think, you know, that you know, we're all of a sudden, you know, uh, reprobates. We're not. If we, if we love Jesus Christ, we were at one time, but we're not anymore. But let's go back to the problem, because the problem actually begins with Hamor's son, or Hamor's son, Shechem, who saw Dinah. He saw her. It made me think of these old, old cartoons where, you know, these guys would look at a, at a girl and their eyes would get this big, and then they'd go, doot, 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 doot. And they would look, you know, man, they were so attracted to somebody, you know. So there's much to say to that initial look. Because it obviously led to a very perverse passion that concluded with rape. Dinah was forced. There's, there's, there's no other way to see it from the scriptures. There's no other way to see it from the very language in the Hebrew. She was forced. She, it brought her to this act that was actually, actually considered filthy in that the word defiled and violated means to humble and to make a person unclean. What Shechem did to Dinah was not only foolish and, and disgraceful, but it was also forbidden. What things ought not to be done. And, and, le, and let me say that that was in most cultures of the time. It was forbidden in most of the cultures of the time. Now, the act itself was forbidden in the Philistine culture. And by the way, if, if, if there's a Hivite or a Hittite or a Canaanite, you know, you go through all of those ites there. Uh, most of them really are descendant of the Philistines. So uh, we can talk about that in, in another time. But it, as a whole, the act was forbidden in the Philistine culture. But I want you to notice something. Notice that there was no apology or remorse when it came to Shechem demanding his father to get this woman for his wife, which makes that love and kindness quite superficial and quite false. True love, folks, still to this day and will always be, true love is still best defined in relation to Christ's love, in relation to God's love. True love will always be best defined and Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. In other words, love is patient. Love is enduring. Love is persevering and it is kind. Kind! I have to emphasize that, you know, because sometimes we say we love people, we're not kind to them. 
Love is patient. Love is suffering long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. In other words, love is not puffed up. It's not arrogant. Arrogant. Love is never arrogant because it is selfless. It is not selfish. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Do you know this is a mirror, folks? To examine our hearts today? This is a mirror. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. The love of Jesus Christ, the unconditional love of God and the love of Jesus Christ never fails. It goes through every storm and comes through that storm better than before. That's love. And so the cultures were extremely different that we see here in this account. One very carnal, which was, of course, the the Canaanite uh, uh, culture. The other spiritual. The other was supposed to be spiritual. In other words, the culture of God in Jacob and his family. Spiritual. Proper, right. Pure, holy. But unless it is practiced and unless it is exercised, it is practically meaningless, as we see in this account. And add to the fact that Jacob held his peace, which means that he remained silent about the violation of his own daughter. And I have to believe that it is out of fear. His sons would not be so silent about their sister. That's where another detour is taken. Costly detour number three is that this whole family who was supposed to know God and, and be taught of God by Jacob went from a righteousness right into revenge. They went from righteousness to revenge. I'm going to read the rest of the text as we're going to do this pretty fast. So the, the, the story pretty much is outlined well for us. So let's, let's just go through it. Verses 8 down all the way to the end. I'll comment along the way. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. No remorse. No apology. And make marriages with us. This sounds like the devil, doesn't it? Isn't the world, the flesh of the devil working here? Using this unbeliever, this, this pagan worshiper, uh, idol worshiper? Make marriages with us. Give, give, give your daughters to us and, and take our daughters to yourselves. <clears throat> this was forbidden by God already to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you shall dwell with us, Hamor goes on to say, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. And then Shechem said to her father... Uh, Shechem said to her father, in other words, the violator, 
said to the father of the one violated and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me. But, but give me the young woman as a wife. Folks, they are still holding her hostage. In their home. Now understand that the Lord had told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to separate from the world. Separate from the world. Make no alliances with the Canaanites. And here comes Hamor, the father of Shechem, and offers Jacob all that the world has to offer. And the key here is the offer to intermarry with the Canaanites. This was Satan's attempt, folks. This was Satan's attempt to pollute and to corrupt the Messianic lineage and prevent the Messiah from coming from the seed of the woman. This has been his whole attempt since Genesis chapter 3. God has kept that line faithful. God protected Noah. God protected the sons of Noah. God protected that line of Shem and all who would follow out after that. God protected them. And He has to protect them still from themselves. So all the while, Hamor and Shechem considered themselves to be very generous. And yet, their manner of negotiating with Jacob was an insult. It was an insult to the violated, uh, violated and defiled Dinah. And it was an insult to her whole family. In other words, their you name your price and we'll pay it attitude seems to indicate that the money and the marriage would make the disgrace go away. It's the way a lot of people work today. We'll just make this whole thing go away if you just, you know, let's bargain. Folks, God doesn't bargain. God's word is true. His word has remained true. His word stays true. It stays the same. He doesn't bargain with his word. So from Shechem's desperate craving, we move on to the despicable craftiness of Jacob's sons, who, by the way, are doing all the negotiations instead of their father. Jacob remains silent. Now let's go on. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully. Ah, because he, had def- because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They spoke deceitfully. In other words, like father, like sons. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. Oh, all of a sudden they're nice and religious. Oh, listen, we, we can't do this thing because, you know, we're uncircumcised. And, and that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised... Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. Hmm. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Do you notice again? We'll take our daughter. They have her. It's making the brothers much more angry than ever before. 
So where do you think the sons of Jacob learned this deceitfulness? (laughs) Well, yes, I know that the heart of man is wicked, but uh, they also had a good teacher. You know what his name is? Yaakov. What does it mean? Conniver, deceiver, supplanter, thief. What a name to give to your son. But then again, God was right, wasn't he? And he gave that name. And they learned their lesson well. They learned the lesson of deceit well. And it is quite sad that they used a very spiritual and precious issue like circumcision, which was precious to God in making the covenant with Abraham and and his descendants. And they used this to cover up their deceitful plan. They abused what was to be right and precious in the sight of God and Abraham's descendants. And they misused their religious position. The covenant of circumcision, which was practiced by some pagan cultures at the time, was given to Abraham by God as a covenant with God's people, and it was not something that they could just give away. They didn't give any testimony about the greatness of their God. They could have. They could have said, listen, because of what you did to our sister, we're going to turn you over to God. God will take care of you. Our God is mighty and our God is great. And we'll give testimony to that. But if you repent, you know, they didn't do that. They never sought after God. They had one thing on their mind, revenge. So this is truly a sign that they were out of touch with God. The sons of Jacob were out of touch with God, but they had been brought up in the knowledge of the God of Jacob. Listen, you can be around it all all you want, but unless you truly turn in your own heart toward the Lord, what good is it? See, that's where religion doesn't help us. What does help us is relationship. And they had none with God. So it was subtle dishonesty because they had no intention whatsoever to let Shechem marry their sister Dinah. We go on. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. Their words pleased them because you know what? They were somewhat familiar with the issue of circumcision because other cultures around them uh, practiced that. But now notice this. Their words pleased Hamor and Shechem. So the young man did not delay to do the the thing uh, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He, he was more honorable than all the household of his father. Now, I don't want you to think, you know, all of a sudden Shechem becomes a very honorable person. What that means is all, all of his other brothers and sisters were not as honorable as he was, and that means they were pretty bad. You all understand that? <laughs> he said, I'll do whatever. Just so that this disgrace will go away. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, and it was always at the gate where important city business was discussed and, and handled. And, they, and, and Hamor, uh, the, uh, yeah, the, the father says, these men are at peace with us, speaking of the, uh, the family of Jacob. These men are at peace with us, therefore let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and, and let us give them our daughters. 
Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people. If every male among us is uh, <coughs> circumcised, uh, circumcised as they're circumcised, <coughs> uh, will not their livestock and their property and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of the city. Now, wow, what a, what a, what a powerful speaker he must have been. But boy, listen to this. What lengths Hamor takes just to satisfy his son, El Chiple, Shechem, to satisfy his lustful appetite for Dinah. He used a simpler dishonesty to get the whole city to submit to the painful rite of circumcision. Uh, Father and son agreed to the deal. Hamor sells the deal to the men of the city. He says to the men, do I have a proposition for you? Oh, man. He must have been a... No, I'm not going to say it. No, I'm not going to say it. Men, do I have a proposition for you? The family of Judah is wealthy and they they live in our land and have many possessions. Uh, They have many women that can be ours, but one little problem. Just a little problem. You have to be circumcised. Oh, did I tell you about the money and the women? It's kind of the way it was spoken here. And they said, okay. Ay, ay, ay. Mensos. Okay. Let's go on. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain. Yeah. They're not little babies here. These are men. It came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that the two, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they're going to help, have help from their, brother, their other brothers as well. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword. And they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. Do you notice? Dinah had been kidnapped and held hostage. They took her out of the house and they went out. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and they plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. Does the punishment fit the crime, folks? Just ask yourself the question. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys and what was in the city and what was in the field and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives they took captive so that they would have slaves now. And they plundered even all that was in the houses. As the text tells us, they were in pain (laughs) on the third day. In fact, they were in pretty bad shape. Now, what you've got to remember is that there were no surgical scalpels or knives in those days to perform circumcision. You know how they did it? Sharp stones. That's all I'm going to say. Let's move on. That's it, man. Let's move on now. Okay. If they had a hard time walking, folks, imagine that they could do no fighting either. You see the plan, the wicked plan of the brothers of Dinah. It was at this point that Simeon and and Levi, uh, Dinah's brothers, and certainly the other brothers, uh, uh, took uh, Amor, Shechem, and the men of the city, And they plundered the city as well. And in their hearts they felt that they did what was right. But the punishment did not 
fit the crime. The punishment did not fit the crime. Just because they were successful does not mean that God blessed them and honored what they did. Not at all. They never sought his counsel. They never sought his wisdom. They just did what was right in their own eyes. And you know what's interesting about that? The book of Proverbs teaches us a lot about the things that we think are right in our own eyes. For example, Proverbs 16, verse 2, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. And a very similar, is, uh, a similar proverb is Proverbs 21, verse 2. It says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. And what that means is in, in the weighing out of the heart and of the spirit, God knows our intentions. God weighs out our intentions. By the way, He knows us better than we know ourselves. I've always said that. And the fact is that we know what our intentions are. But He knows them more deeply than we do. And He weighs them in light of what we have done or not done in coming to Him or not coming to Him in seeking His wisdom, His grace, and His mercy, even in traumatic situations. So we close out this chapter looking at Jacob, not Israel. It should be Israel, but it's Jacob. It says, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. By the way, the word obnoxious, you've just made me smell really bad, stink really bad among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, you know, all of the pagan idol worshipers, all of the unbelievers. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, the sons, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Now they have an anger. To some extent is, is justified anger just because of what was done to their sister. But they're just trying to justify the fact that they did what they did and yet it didn't fit the crime. They have any beef with anybody, it was with Shechem, right? Not with the whole city. That shows the evil that was in people who should have known better. But who is Jacob concerned with more here in this passage, these last three verses? It appears that he's concerned about himself. And what other nations, uh, these other nations, the inhabitants of the land, will think about what his sons have done. And that they may come after him. That sounds very much like his father and grandfather. It sounds very much like Abraham and Isaac in their weakest points. When Abraham and Isaac both, when they were traveling with their wives, you know, Abraham with Sarah and Isaac with Rebekah, will come upon a a certain people. And and Abraham said to Sarah, as even Isaac said to Rebekah, listen, when they ask you, don't tell them that you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister. Because if you tell them you're my wife, they'll kill me and they'll put you in their harem. 
My whole emphasis is me. I don't care that you're going into a harem. <laughs> I mean, really, do you think that it matters? Yeah, it should matter, but, oh, listen, you'll be in a harem, but I'll be dead. Isaac did the same thing. So, like father, like son, and like grandson. He thinks about himself. And the sons thought about themselves. And yet, folks, what do we see missing here? What we see missing is that there is no concern for Dinah. There is no concern for Dinah shown here. Uh, Or is there concern for the death of the people of Shechem? And so notice that God calls him throughout this whole chapter, Jacob. Why? Because he's still a schemer. He's still a deceiver. He's still a thief in essence. Because he said nothing to his sons. Until what he said was only about himself. He should have dealt with the sins of his sons by putting them before God. He should have dealt with the sin of Shechem by him going to Hamor and to Shechem and saying on behalf of my God, I'm going to turn you over to him. So either give me your, my daughter now, whom you have violated, and I'll leave your city in God's hands. Didn't do that. And he didn't comfort Dinah. Not at, at least not at this point. He may have. And of course, he could have prevented all of this. He could have prevented all of this by just stopping Dinah from going to the city in the first place. And he could have prevented it even before that by just being obedient to God and going on to Bethel rather than stopping on the way because he wants to change his way of life. So at the end of Jacob's life, we're almost done here. At the end of Jacob's life, when he's about to die, and we'll see this in chapter 49... But he actually prophesied over his 12 sons. And this is what he had to say about Simeon and, and Levi for what they did in this chapter here. He said this in Genesis 49 verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Well, we'll get that in, when we get to chapter 49. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Well, Jacob rebuked his sons far too late. That rebuke should have come a long time before. But the prophetic word of God through Jacob proved to be true. The Lord did in fact divide the tribes of Simeon and Levi and scattered them among Israel. The way it happened for each tribe was different. Because of their lack of faithfulness, Simeon was dissolved as a tribe and was absorbed into the tribal area of Judah. The tribe of Levi, on the other hand, was scattered due to their faithfulness. Actually, they were, they were scattered due to their faithfulness to the Lord during the rebellion in the wilderness after Israel's exodus from Egypt. That time when, when uh, they were waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain and, and he didn't come down. They said, he must be dead. We want to worship a God. And they forced Aaron and Moses' brother to, to, you know, the, to, to make the, uh, uh, the golden calf. And it was the, 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 the sons of Levi or the, the, the family or the tribe of Levi that actually stood with, with God and the, the people of God uh, when God actually uh, judged those who 
were wanting this molten calf to be made. Well, as painful as this account was, the Lord did not give up on Jacob. Now, this is, this is really our encouragement here today. The Lord did not give up on Jacob. And we need to be thankful that he doesn't give up on us. Because there have been times when we've done some heinous things ourselves, even as believers, because we took a costly detour from the truth. Or we took a costly detour from the way that God wanted us to do certain things, and we did them on our own, in our own manner, and not in obedience. But he remained ever gracious with Jacob. There were still consequences, folks. I, I said this a while back. Jacob really suffered a lot of consequences for his actions. But God still loved him and God still blessed him. Understand that. God was faithful to his covenant to Abraham. And so he was with Jacob as well. So I want to leave you with the first verse of the next chapter because once again now God speaks to Jacob. And notice what he says. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. You know, it was as if God was saying to him, You know, Jacob, would you just please go where I tell you? And things will be better for you? Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. In other words, don't just build a religious place. Build a place where you and I can have relationship and fellowship. Not one that you name after your own name. You know, in a, uh, you, you make an altar after your own name. El Elohe Israel. It should just be God. My God. And we will have fellowship. One with each other. I ask you and urge you to pray. That God gives you wisdom in going down every road that He wants you to go because it will always be a good road. Yes, there's going to be challenges. Yes, there's going to be times that we have to really, really trust the Lord, but really understand this. God loves you so much. He wants to bless you. He doesn't want you to take costly detours that bring about circumstances and consequences that are more painful because we add them really to ourselves. So always remember this. God is in control at all times. And so you can trust Him with every step that you take. And if you've never prayed to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what a wonderful day it can be for you. Would you join me in prayer?